This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. the 16th episode of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase, where I invite bloggers, filmmakers and fellow film junkies to help me work for the 1001 film introduction to Coulton Obscure Cinema, which is the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange list. Tonight we have a classic cinema double bill, as we look at the influential 1942 B-movie Cat People, as well as the granddaddy of exploitation cinema, Freaks. But my guest joining me in the studio this evening is not only the owner of the blog Jenny's in Classic Film, but also one half of the Walt Sent Me podcast and a regular, regular contributor to the Lambcast. It, of course, gives me great pleasure to welcome to the studio Christian Lopez. Hello. Hello, everybody. Thank you uh, for coming on and uh, obviously uh, picking out the films for us this evening. Thank you for letting me talk about classic horror films that I probably... These are ones you kind of got to couch in the right format or, or people are just going to find them really weird. Okay. <laughs> Well, looking at some of the films we have on the list, I think this is like more towards the normal, normal side compared to some of the things we're going to be covering yeah, in future yeah. episodes, so it's not too bad. Um, before we obviously discuss our films, film selection for this evening, I just want to obviously talk a bit about uh, your site and obviously your work within the blogging community, if that's all right with yourself. Yeah, I mean, um, I started my, my blog started as a grand experiment just to see if I could keep a blog going. I thought I would probably keep it for like maybe three weeks a month at most and now we're coming into my third year and it's been pretty awesome i, I also write for awardcircuit.com doing classic um and contemporary films for them so yeah it's it's been awesome it's tested my my vocabulary skills i'm really stretching that masters in english now trying to come up with words to say about movies all, all the time but it's been it's been a pretty awesome experience yeah i mean I have to obviously ask, because your blog is specifically just about classic cinema, uh, what's the appeal of classic cinema? Well, it, originally it started out as I wrote so much about what was kind of new and contemporary that I wanted a blog about stuff that I could, stuff that I knew I couldn't really put on mainstream sites, you know, yeah. that wanted more of the contemporary stuff. And also, because from a more personally selfish angle, there were so many sites that reviewed new movies, I thought maybe content, classic films might give me an edge and, and at least help people to... I, I just wanted more hits for my blog, really, I mean, when we get down to it. So uh, it turned out that there was you know, a, a really fervent classic film community who started showing up and reading my stuff, and I figured, okay, well, this allows me to kind of get the best of both worlds. I can write about modern movies for one site, and I can write about classic films for my blog, and... That is slowly spiraled out into, I'm at the point now where I have to actually stop myself from reviewing stuff, or else I just don't watch movies for fear that, you know, I'm like, I gotta review this, where can I review this, where is this gonna go? So, yeah. it's kind of created as a, a monster in its own way. Oh, I totally understand the, the feeling that whenever you watch something that 
in the back of your mind you're thinking, oh, I have to review this as well. There's, yeah. You sometimes have to sit down and go, right, we're just going to watch this for its pure entertainment value. We're not writing it from a critical standpoint. We're not exactly, yeah. It. You really have to figure out, once once you get to a certain point, you're like, A, you know, I'm, I'm one of those two. I'm, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so... Like the last the last year, I told everybody, you know, my reviews weren't really that great from from my standpoint, just because I was just trying to churn them out. So I'm hoping I'm getting back to the point where I really want to start writing about stuff that actually is worth writing about, whether really good or really bad. Yeah. So so that's where I've been at, and it's it's worked out really well, I think. Recently, you've been over at the TCM Classic Film Festival. You've been doing coverage for them. How did that sort of come about, really? Um, well, last year, uh, Turner Classic Movies, I, I applied to, I'd seen people going to their festivals, and I figured, well, I'm not a big, you know, big-time writer, so they're not going to ever give me press credentials while I applied, and they did. So that was last year, and it was just fantastic getting to, A, see all these classic films and see, you know, these celebrities that, you know, I would have never gotten a chance to see anywhere else, and just kind of meeting the, the community and the people there that know what you're talking about. Um, and then this year, TCM was trying to branch out and hired a bunch of um, amazing bloggers and, and other media savvy people to be social producers and I got picked. So this year I wasn't just covering the, the festival for my site, I was actually working alongside TCM, just promoting the festival via Twitter, Instagram, talking to people online, trying to help the people back home who couldn't go, hopefully get a little taste of, of what they were, were missing out on. Yeah. Is there any sort of films that were shown, obviously, at this year's festival that, that were sort of, like, gaining more interest than others? Well, I think there were, I mean, the films I saw, this was a, a more panel-heavy festival for me this year. I didn't go see as many movies as I saw last year. But the ones I saw were all interesting in their own ways. Like, um, my travel buddy who went with me forced me to go see On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which they were, they were screening. Hmm. And I've only maybe seen about a handful of Bond films. Nothing, I think, earlier than the 80s. So this is my first, my first um, 1960s Bond film, and it's not my genre. You know, Bond's not for me, so I didn't really care for it. But it was interesting to see, and, and George Lazenby was there. He introduced it, and he was a kick in the pants, talking yeah. about all the women he was sleeping with and, and everything. So that was interesting. And we also went and saw Kiss Me Kate in 3D, which is a 1950s musical that was hilarious to sit with my friends because it's one of those movies that is just so over the top and grandiose, but then it's really weird. Like there's a lot of men in tights with like bulging cod pieces. And there's a song about a girl talking about finding any Tom, Dick or Harry. And let's just say they used the innuendo of that song to its full extent. So those were two that I was like, I was so excited that I was so happy that I got to experience at least with a group um, because you really got to see certain classic films have to be experienced with the right setting or they just kind of lose that extra edge. I, I totally agree. There are certain films where you have to watch with an audience. In my personal experience, it's mainly been the sort of movies that are so bad that they're good. Yes. Movies like Pieces or um, when I was talking to Todd Oven, the Forgotten Film cast, we were talking about the Human Tornado. And again, it was just another film that if you're watching it with an audience, you get much more of a kick out of it than if you're sitting watching it by yourself. Yeah, and TCM does do, they do midnight screenings. Um, unfortunately, because it's one of those festivals where you're running around from, you know, usually like 7 a.m. until, you know, midnight. I haven't been to a midnight screening, mostly because I haven't been able to stay awake. And uh, last year, they actually did show Freaks with Pat Oswalt introducing, which I'm really miffed I missed. 
Um, and then this year they showed uh, a Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor movie that was supposedly really funny that I'm, again, kicking myself that I didn't get to see, but I would have probably slept through the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, you obviously, just to go back a bit, it's uh, obviously quite amusing the fact that whenever a lot of my American friends say, when they talk about Bond, the fact that they haven't seen them all, and coming from, obviously, a British standpoint, over here, Bond is such a big thing that it's kind of unheard of that you haven't seen them all. I think it's just, I don't know if it's just part of our culture or how we're obviously brought up just with these films and the fact it is a British secret agent rather than just an, another American secret agent that we hold him in such uh, high regard. So it's always kind of surreal to obviously hear, uh, hear other critics say, oh, I've only seen like the early 80s ones. I've only seen like the Connery ones, but... Yeah, well, and I mean, I'm one of those, like, I'm an, I'm a, an Anglophile, so I watch <laughs> any British thing that comes a, a, across my desk. I mean, I, my, I love every movie that's ever been made, well, almost every movie, about, like, the Tudors. I watch anything that has to do with them, even just basic. Uh, but the Bond franchise, I'm, I'm one of those, I, I write a lot of essays and articles in terms of depictions of women. And I've read a couple Bond books, I've seen... Um, the modern ones I've seen, if I have to recount it, I've seen all the Daniel Craig ones. I've seen one Brosnan and I've seen one Dalton and now one Liz, the only Lazenby one. And those are not fun movies to watch if you're kind of critical of how women are portrayed. And I know that's the intent, Yeah. but it still just rubs me the wrong way. I mean, the Lazenby one, I could understand. Okay. It's 69 you're not going to get, you know, everything you want. Uh, but, you know, even some of the modern Bonds, like the Daniel Craig ones, I still kind of cringe every now and then. I'm like, come on, we're in 20, we're in the 2000s, guys. We can't write a better lady, please. So, yeah, it's... the Bond franchise has never been the franchise for me, but I understand. I'm one of those. I understand its appeal. It's just never worked for me. <laughs> yeah. I understand what you're saying. that The Bond franchise isn't renowned for its feisty ladies. Occasionally we'll have one or two turn up at, that make an appearance, but normally they're kind of overshadowed. I mean, we had like Michelle Yeoh in Tomorrow Never Dies. I think she's sort of like the real sort of standout for a feisty sort of Bond girl. Um, yeah. And obviously with her background in Hong Kong cinema. And obviously with George uh, Lazenby, only did the one uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And for my money, he's always been better when he's playing a villain. You, when you look at films like The Man from Hong Kong, Australia's only Kung Fu movie. He plays the villain in that, and he's always been better whenever he's been playing a villain than a good guy. Yeah, and I mean, from from somebody who this was my first time seeing the movie, he wasn't as terrible. You know, when I went into it, I was like, okay, well, he's the only person that's played Bond one time. Well, that must mean that he sucks. And he wasn't terrible. I mean, if anything, listening to him speak, it's kind of obvious why he sunk his own ship. So, I mean, from that perspective, I was kind of surprised. It looked it looked great. I mean, it's really campy because it's 69. So, I mean, everything looks very garish. And um, the, the weird um, bobsled scene or whatever looks pretty ridiculous. But, I mean, I was engaged far more than I anticipated. But at the same time, I was just like, that, and I don't want to spoil the end. But the ending, just, I know that people say, well, it's, it's the time we've seen Bond be vulnerable. But I was like, yeah, but that character... In question, oh, that end that is only there to satisfy that ending without spoiling it. But that that was my big criticism. But I can cross it off the list. I've seen it, so that's one more bond. Now I just need to see a Connery one. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, Connery really is when it comes to actors playing uh, Bond. He's sort of the standard. 
Yeah. That we mark all other bonds against what Connery brought to the franchise. And uh, it, it's always been this, he set the bar like at such a high level that I think because, again, this is obviously how we view the series, we sort of, no matter what any actor does now, I don't think, even if they were better than Connery, we wouldn't admit it. Just because we've like now established in our mind that Connery is James Bond, that even though he like Connery refuses to talk about the franchise the same as Christopher Lee won't talk about playing Dracula, we still hold him in such high regard as being the definitive Bond. Yeah, um, I think others have come close. Daniel Craig's doing okay things. It's a shame he hasn't really had a good Bond movie as such to really do it with. Again, Pierce Brosnan would be in my money the closest we've come. And then, and the much disputed opinion would be Timothy Dalton being the third best Bond that we've had. But no doubt that's the sort of thing that's going to get me uh, numerous disagreements in the comments section. And, and I'm I'm one of those that I get I get criticism for for how, for all I've seen movies with all three of them, and I have different reasons for why I can tolerate each one. So so most people will look at me and I'll be like, okay, well I like. I like Casino Royale. Daniel Craig was hot. There's that whole, you know, ball bashing scene. That's always fun to watch. And <laughs> and then, you know, Timothy Dalton, Robert Davi was a really great villain in, in License to Kill. He was great, but it had a horrible Bond girl, in my opinion. And then um, Goldeneye. I like Goldeneye because Sean Bean's really cool, and he, he, should be in, he should be in everything. So I have really poor reasons for logic choices in terms of why I watch those. <laughs> Fair enough. Obviously, it's not just classic film that you're safe to say an expert in, it would seem. Um, you also do the Walt Semi podcast, which, interestingly enough, focuses on Disney. Yeah, um, um, Todd, Todd and I both realize that we love Disney a lot. And I, I, live, I live eight hours from Disneyland, so I don't get to go nearly as much as I like. But I, I love Disney. Um, I did on my blog a whole... I think it took almost a year and a half, maybe two years. I, I don't really remember. I, I watched every Disney animated movie and then reviewed them. So, I mean, my 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 love for Disney knows no bounds. <laughs> I mean, it's the the, the Walt Semi podcast. If I would urge like all my listeners to go and listen to it because it is an absolutely fantastic podcast. I mean, the two of you together, it's like this perfect storm. You've got Todd, who's obviously this laid back uh, sort of presence there, and then we've got yourself, who's like this human tornado of film <laughs> trivia. Like, I don't know how you managed to go out of it. I'm like, in a, you just say like a simple film, like the one I was listening to the other day on The Emperor's New Groove. Yes. And I didn't realize the sheer depth or the background of that film. And the way you just reel it off, it's, I don't know if you just got very good notes or this is just off the top of your head, but it's impressive to say the least. And just the, even when you're covering the shorts, because you do a, every episode you do a short as well as the film in discussion and just the the amount of knowledge that you both bring to the subject matter which most people would sort of dismiss as being sort of like kids as kids movies that they wouldn't deserve the sort of critical thought that you obviously bring to uh, the podcast there yeah well it's good that we get to you know todd todd had the great idea to branch out into the fact that disney owns so many subsidiary studios so we don't have to talk just about, you know, Walt Disney animated films or even really Disney movies that fall under the Walt Disney banner. We can go and talk about Miramax or we can talk about, you know, uh, Touchstone films, which are, you know, obviously PG-13 and R-rated films. So, you know, we've, we've talked about our fair share of non-Disney-based movies that probably wouldn't play under, you know, a Disney in a Disney theme park. Um, and it helps that Todd, I hate to say it because Todd's going to give you crap, 
I'm the young one. Todd's slightly older. He's got kids. So, like, when we, we just finished up a discussion about Tarzan, and I told him I didn't like it. And it was probably the most polite disagreement that we've ever had, where I, I didn't care for it. And Todd Todd's perspective was, well, you know, it was when his, it, his daughter was born. I was like, yeah, but I don't have that connection. I didn't really like it. So... We kind of play off each other very well, and, and it helps that, you know, most of the time I know the backstories, but Wikipedia also helps in the clutch when I'm trying to find something that I know is true but I can't remember. So it, it's it's a, one of those shows where it could be very easy to kind of half-ass it, but we, we don't because we both love the subject matter so much. Yeah. Is there any sort of films for future episodes that you're sort of keen to get to? Oh gosh. Um, I know we have a bunch planned. Like we're we're definitely doing the Avengers in the next couple of weeks, um, to try to tie in with the movie. Um, I I'm one of those though. I try to get Todd out of his comfort zone as much as I can. <laughs> so I'm probably gonna try to find some some weird R-rated movies to get him to watch. Um, we were we did get suggested once. Um, we got we got a suggestion for someone to do um the movie Kids, which if anybody knows that movie, it's a borderline NC-17 film, um, and Todd didn't want to do it, and I said, well, we'll keep that in our back pocket for later, you know, if we ever if we ever run out of ideas, so I need to find something that's going to make him truly uncomfortable, and will make him uncomfortable for having to talk about it with me, because he knows I can talk about anything. Yeah, uh, Kids Directed by Larry Clark, it's an eye-opening film, to say the least. Yeah, um, I, I haven't seen it. I've heard, you know, that it's both incredibly uncomfortable, but it's also kind of landmark in its, in its, I guess, frank frankness, if that's the word to use. So yeah, uh, I've been interested in watching it, but Todd, Todd's a bit more reluctant. <laughs> I would, I would be uh, interested to see what uh, what Todd makes of it, and if he could keep his sort of trademark. Uh calmness discussing kids exactly exactly but, um, so yeah yeah i mean it was from the same writer if though it's directed by larry clark who'd obviously gone to direct bully and he also did a remake of uh, teenage cave caveman as well uh harmony corinne would more recently give us spring breakers spring and breakers. also did gummo so kids I, is I wish, I a nice wish entry point breakers had been put out by disney in some some form, so that I could get him to watch back. So that would be that would be a fun episode to record. Oh, Spring Breakers! It it just makes me feel old. I've watched Spring Breakers twice now, and I still don't get it. And I'm and I'm 26, yeah. so I mean, I, I I just I don't I don't get it. But it's one of those where I can watch it and be completely entranced, but I still don't actually think it's any good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, visually, <laughs> I like it. it. Don't get me wrong. It's the soundtrack by Skeletrix. Yes. And it's like, what the hell is this? This is just noise. Yeah, it's, well, it's also like watching, like, I, I'm one of those, I, I watched The Bling Ring for the second time. And I love Sofia Coppola mm. in certain films. But watching The Bling Ring for the second time, I realized it's a soundtrack movie. The soundtrack's good, and it keeps you engaged in the film, which is pretty much just, hey, look at all the pretty clothes I put on this on, on the frame. So, I mean, I liked, I did really enjoy The Bling Ring. The only thing I don't like about The Bling Ring is the fact it has Emma Watson in it. <laughs> the bane of the English filmmaking industry is Emma Watson. Her and Noel Clarke, uh, like, seemingly on a single-handed mission to kill any credibility that we have as... <laughs> well, oh, she's going to be going back to Disney. She's going to be Belle in, in Beauty and the Beast. I know. She's, she's kind of the flavor of the week at the moment. And, you know, like many horrible things just won't go away. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm one of those. I can, 
take her or leave her. You know, she hasn't really done much to wow me. Although, if we're if we're talking flavor of the week, I just I went on a a rant about a week or two ago about Eddie Redmayne playing every poor minority in in the world from the handicap to now he's playing a trans transgender. So I'm waiting for him to be in the movie where he just plays like blackface, not not like Tropic Thunder, like serious. <laughs> so <laughs> it's well, I mean, if uh, Willem Dafoe can technically get away with it in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, I think it's a pretty open uh, <laughs> market. So that was brownface. That was I think it was just acceptable enough in that movie. I, I again, I don't know the fact that. He had his face like taken off. If that was sort of like what balanced it out, it's like, oh, he blacked up. But you know, we punish him in the film, so that's fine. We can we can get away with that. But I can see that. I can see that. But yeah, uh, Emma Watson. If we're talking about taking or leave her, I think I'd just leave her. You know, preferably on a train track or something. But <laughs> um, she's the only one from the Harry Potter franchise with a career at this point. So no, Daniel Radcliffe is doing okay. He's not doing too bad, even the whole. I'm, I'm going to leave the pause there because I'm trying to think of the last movie I saw him in. Probably okay. in black. <laughs> <laughs> okay, onto your sort of taste. I mean, what would you say is the last film you saw that sort of blew your mind? Oh, goodness, are we talking classic or contemporary? Any film, any film you want. Just something that uh, really sort of grabbed you. Well, I mean, having having gone to the TCM Film Festival, I'd probably say it was that really weird Kiss Me Kate screening because it's a beautiful movie, but the plot is just insane and makes no sense. And I mean, classic movies pretty much have a very cut and dry sensibility in terms of the story, mm. um, and and that just is all over the board. Another one that I just I just saw this yesterday, but I did go see It Follows. Um, that everybody, the, the horror movie that everybody's kind of been freaking out about. And that's another one that both kind of took me back to how frightening it was from doing something so simple, but at the same time, the plot is just utterly nuts, that if you start talking about it out loud, it makes no sense. But the way it executes that plot is just, in a world where we have so many crappy horror films that just are so reliant on gimmicks, this one does that well. So those are the two that I think if I had to, in, at least in the last month, that really just kind of maybe say, wow, but for two totally different reasons. Okay, and is there any particular film that you could say you've returned to the most? Oh, gosh. There's a lot. I, there's a couple. Like, I, I love Almost Famous. That's a movie I can watch all the time. Never gets, it never gets boring to me, and it, it's one of those that I can watch at any point in my life and it says something different. It speaks to me. Like, you know, when, when I saw it, when it came out, it spoke to that idealistic kid in me that wanted to go out and kind of change the world. And then as an adult, it, it still plays on those themes, but it shows how just ridiculous that is at this point. Um, I mean, there's a bunch of movies that I, I watch just repeatedly. Like, My Girl is my feel-good movie, even though the ending is completely depressing. Yeah, um, the-, the ending is, is totally depressing. I, I'm not ashamed to say that uh, the ending does leave me in tears. It's yeah, so yeah. sad. Oh, it's 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 literally the saddest thing you could ever watch. I mean, it's it's worse than watching like Bambi. I mean, because you don't know Bambi's mom for very long before they kill her off. Okay, this movie you develop a relationship with these people and then they die. Okay, um, Bambi, Bambi, I I wouldn't put in the same category as my girl. <laughs> I take I take the Chandler sort of viewpoint of. 
why is it so sad that the man stopped drawing the deer? I I didn't have the same so it seemingly the same emotional connection everyone else did to the to that film. So uh... yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then I, I'm trying to think of another uh, showgirls is kind of my go-to. I can watch that all the time, and it never gets boring. It's in it's insane, but it's awesome. Because it's have... kind of like the grand wignol of, of crappy films, and I, I love it. I don't know what it is. Whenever I, uh, I'm asking female critics, Showgirls, time and time again, is always brought up by female critics. I've <laughs> never, I've yet to have a guy critic say, oh yeah, Showgirls is a film I've returned to like frequently. And that's the weirdest thing, too, because I, I've made, um, I've tried to argue to get it on the Lambcast, and it hasn't worked. Um, I did make, I did make a couple, I did do a podcast episode where we did talk about it on something. And I, I'm one of, like, the biggest defenders of Showgirls because it also has – it has classic film roots because Joe Esterhaas, who wrote the script, said that he tried to make a, a All About Eve type of film, which, oh, my gosh, he succeeded. Um, and it's just – it's unrepentant in how shameless it is. It has – it does not give a shit what, what happens in it, but it's so awesome. I – no, it, it, I have it on Blu-ray. I love it. I will watch it every New Year's, and I have just the best time. <laughs> yeah. I don't uh, think I'm probably going to help the cause in trying to get on the Lambcast after the <laughs> whole debacle with Southland Tales. I don't think Jay's ever going to trust me on like a film again. Oh, okay. But Southland Tales isn't terrible. I've, I, I rewatched no. that like a month and a half ago. Oh my god. Southland Tales is, is, is the most wonderful film. It's not Richard Kelly's best, but it is... I would say easily his second best film. It's better it's than the box. The it's musical. better than Domino. It's got the best unnecessary musical moment in in a long time. I think we're the just going to Justin gonna... Timberlake. The Justin Timberlake song singing the Killers. That was a great scene. <laughs> and it the... makes no sense in the movie, but it's it's yeah. fun to watch. So now I've I've been trying to get Showgirls and Mommy Dearest on the Lambcast, and it has not worked out for me. So I'm I'm really bummed. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm, hold, I'm holding out that this Christmas, Christmas Evil, will be our Christmas movie. Oh my gosh, I, I have seen... That was crap. <laughs> I have seen that. I, I think I did... Um, I used to do a podcast with a friend like six or so years ago, and we did a live commentary about that movie, and I was just, just like, no, there's way better... I'm Silent Night, Deadly Night is way better than that movie. Yeah. We've actually uh, we covered both of those on back when we did the alternate Christmas special here on the here on the show, uh, which you can if you go in the archive section you can uh, listen back to what myself and Emily uh, Intrino of the Feminine Critique podcast uh, had to say about that one. Um, I think like Southland Tales, Kristen, it's going to be a, have to be a film we're going to have to agree to disagree on because Christmas <laughs> Evil is just a magical Christmas viewing experience for me. Keep in mind, it's been like at least five years since I've seen it. So, okay. I mean, I can, I could give it a second glance, but I, I recall not liking it. But then again, I, I also had to watch for the same podcast. We did a live commentary of Mac and Me, which Ooh. nearly broke my heart because it's such a god awful film that deserves to be burned in a fire yeah, that I, just, I, that I spark. I just remember watching that a lot in the early 90s as a kid, it, like seeing it in the cinema and then. You're, it's like your parents like rent at you from the video store because it's like, oh, you must have enjoyed it. You went to see it in the cinema, and it's like, you don't know no. better at that age. 
Mac and Me is the single worst movie to set back disabled people like back like forty years. I mean, th- literally, just to give the give the listeners a taste, there is a scene where this kid in a wheelchair rolls down a ninety degree hill and he tries to put the brakes on on his wheelchair and the brakes snap like they're plastic. And then he falls off the cliff, out of his wheelchair. This is like a 100-foot cliff. And he pops up. And it's like, oh, yay, I'm alive. No, no. First of all, your wheelchair obviously was made in freaking Beirut or something. It's held together by twigs and spit. And you should be dead and your corpse should be rotting. No, I call shenanigans on that. I just remember it being a shameless plug for McDonald's, but uh... it is a shameless plug for McDonald's. That's that's also true. But but as somebody who uses a wheelchair in their daily life, I was like, no, this kid should be dead. Okay, he is the worst. And I mean, I think the kid really was in a wheelchair, which just made it worse to me because I was like, come on, he couldn't give input. Like, um, hi, you guys know that by the laws of physics, I should be killed like eight times in this movie. Like he almost he should be dead like forty five times in this film. But at the same time, they, like, sprinkle french fries on him and chicken McNuggets, and he's okay. <laughs> I hate that movie. <laughs> okay. All right, just purely because I'm the sort of person who likes to poke beehives, what's your thoughts on Fault in Their Stars? My, oh, what's my problem with Fault in Our Stars? <laughs> I know you've been very well documented on pretty much oh. everywhere else with this film, so. <sighs> I have not read the book, so I do not have the connection that most people have. Um, I hate the Fault in Our Stars. I think it's a garbage film. <laughs> Good acting. Well, actually, Shailene Woodley's good at it. Um, but I hate the concept of a guy who talks like he's a 40-year-old man. Yeah. Um, who talks about pretension and all of that. Meanwhile, he's the most pretentious ass in the entire world. Uh, she says, don't call me my name, you know, my full name. He calls her, like, first of all, John Green apparently only names his female characters with three really old people names. So even though she tells this guy, don't call me that, he still calls her that throughout the entire movie. And any guy who's not going to listen to you about that ain't going to listen to you about anything else. They equate her struggle with the struggle that Anne Frank experienced because white middle class cancer whilst bad is in no way, shape or form the same thing as the Holocaust. And um, pretty much the movie says cancer's terrible, but you don't ever look ugly and you can find a hot boyfriend who will talk about, you know, quote, poetry and, and read Proust to you by moonlight. And um, he might die, but, you know, it's cool because boyfriends are cool. No, look that movie, okay? It's ser- it, it pretty much says cancer's not that bad. You find a guy. Everything works out. No. Yeah, I had no interest in seeing Fault in Their Stars until the first time I heard you rant about it. And that's... That- <laughs> The, I think on the lamb cast, yeah, I called it cancer. It's really not that bad. <laughs> yeah, I I hate that movie. I hate it. I hate it so much. Yeah. And I think John Green has a new movie coming out this year that is not about cancer, thank God. But it looks just as smarmy and white and pretentious as The Fault in Our Stars. So I'm expecting to hate that, too. Okay. Now, um, as I said, I had no interest in seeing that film until I heard you uh, rant about it. Now I've got like a whole new way of looking at it. And before, I just had the horrible dance tribute they did on Dance Moms to it. So, uh... oh god! But, keep uh... in mind, keep in mind. There's usually one movie that I usually buck the trend and I hate. So, Fault in Our Stars was last year. Um, I hated American Hustle the year it came out, and I was on the outs on that. And I think I also was the only person that hated Silver Linings Playbook. So. 
there's usually one big crowd pleaser that I usually hate, and so that was that was my last year. I can't fault Silver Linings Playbook, so uh, I I think I, just purely because I know the whole podcast is going to be soon going to descend into uh, films that you hate that I like, so uh, we're just going to leave it on that point. <laughs> I know I'm on the outs on on the ladder too, but I, I just I gotta I gotta stick to my guns. It's more, it's more than welcome to. Uh, it's always uh, good to have a an opinionated uh, critic and blogger on the on this uh, show. It just makes it more interesting. But um, on to the first of uh, tonight's selections, we're looking at the 1942 film Cat People, directed by uh, Jacques. The film itself follows Arena, here played by Simone Simon, who's a Serbian fashion artist currently living in New York City, who finds herself caught up in a whirlwind romance with marine engineer Oliver, who here is played by Kent Smith. However, Arena believes that if she's intimate with her new husband, that an ancient curse will, from her homeland will turn her into a panther. Opening thoughts on this one. This I've seen several times. Um, I, I actually watched it in a film class the first time, and I, I loved it. And I, I have all of the uh, Val Luton films, of which this is one um, on DVD. So this is this is a really really subversive movie for 1942. And and Val Luton films, um, he was the producer. He was usually just given a title, and then would write a story around that title. And what he wrote ended up being a really subversive little picture about sexual repression and gender and Simone Simon's beautiful and Tom Conway's creepy as hell. Um, this is also one where the, the sequel, Curse of the Cat People, is just as good as the original, although totally different. It just has the same characters in it. Um, and I have seen about 15 minutes of the remake, which has, um, I think it's Natasha Kinski, and I hated it because they they just they take it to a place where I don't really think it needed to be. But um, this one just it, it withholds the test of time. I think it's creepy. It's also got a really good story, and I, I really enjoy this one. Yeah, um, as you said, uh, it's this based on a short story by Valut, and uh, in this case, the Back Eater. Um, with this, uh, Tornado Archeo Studios essentially just gave him a really small budget of about one hundred fifty thousand dollars and said, "Go make us a film." Um, and he manages to produce something that's not only visually stylish but highly effective at the same time. And it's unsurprising that obviously they would then lead on to more mainstream projects such as Out of the Past and Berlin Express, which he would go on to make after this film. But the film itself is very effective for the budget they're working with. It's not got any sort of big uh, set pieces. It's also a really short runtime. I mean, there's only 73 minutes. For myself, it did drag on a lot. I'm not a huge fan of this film, I will say right now. Um, I just really couldn't get into this film at all. It seemed to just ponder about and didn't really go anywhere and had a lot of uh, sort of flash, but very little substance for myself. So I can I can see it. It makes me sad. But, um, I, I mean, this is one of those where it's definitely trying to say more than it originally, I think, set out to do. Mm. And there are things about this that I dis dislike. The big thing I hate is um, the husband, um, played by Kent Smith. Oliver is a truly horrible person. Um, and he, he marries Arena. They don't have sex with each other. And he immediately goes out and finds a new lady. He plays. He finds his his best his best uh, friend, who is a girl played uh, played by Jane Randolph, who he has ignored up until the point where he's like, eh, screw this lady I'm married to. I'm gonna find a new piece, and 
you're supposed to kind of root for them, but I never do because, again, they're awful. Yeah. Um, but but at the same time, Arena is pretty much just that character that is just besieged upon by people, whether it's her, you know, her husband trying to commit her or she goes to see the doctor, again, played by Tom Conway, and he tries to essentially, I think, molest the, the crazy out of her. <laughs> um, so there are things that you're just kind of like taken, taken aback by it. But this is also one of the few films where I really think there's more going under the surface that people who anticipate kind of a... This is one of those that's going to be lost on, I think, modern moviegoers. Like, like people who have grown up with slasher films or, or anything in the 2000s are going to be really just like, okay, I waited for a cat person, and there's not any cat people. In this. Yeah, it, it, it's, it promises a lot, but fails to sort of deliver on its promise. But again, for a lot of these early sort of horror movies, it was always sort of the case that they always promised more than they could deliver. I mean, it's obviously funny that you mentioned about Conway here as uh, Dr. Judd. He really comes from the Vincent Price school of psychotherapy. Um, <laughs> and he played, he played that character, he played that same character in The Seventh Victim, another Val Luton film. He plays the same character, and you're really not sure if this is obviously before, because he meets his demise at the end of this movie, or what. They just they bring that character back for no reason. I have to also question, why does he have a sword cane? I mean, because was he expecting it's, it's, her to turn into a panther? I mean, was he, like, his whole plan to, like, get her to turn into a panther so he could, like, have his sword came ready to go, or...? I, I hate to use it because it's so overused, but it's it's such a phallic metaphor. I mean, that's, I think, most of what this movie plays with is that all, everything is metaphorical. There right. is nothing here that is that is just because. It's all intentionally trying to lead you towards a deeper rabbit hole. So... So for me, when he's wielding that little sword cane about, it's just, it's, it's a penis. I mean, for, to use Freudian imagery, that's what it is. <laughs> I will take it. And I just to detoured the conversation somewhere else. <laughs> um, the film itself, I mean, a lot of sort of more modern horror, ma- horror, horror filmmakers have sort of cited it as being very influential, especially because it's really gives the gives the first example of a jump scare or loot and bust if you want to yeah. be technical um, in the scene where Alice is sort of like walking down the street and you see the bushes sort of rustling and you've got the setup that there's this big cat somewhere but you never can see it it's always in the shadows and you sort of see like the aftermath like some slaughtered sheep or bloody footprints and you see, yeah. have this scene where she's sort of walking along and you think that it's going to jump out but suddenly the bus arrives and it's still a really effective scene it's one of the few scenes that is still effective now. I know a lot of it seems a little overplayed, such as the scene where she's in the swimming pool. And again, John Carpenter again feels that this film's sort of very overrated, uh, where you obviously have other filmmakers from within the genre, people like Wes Craven, who just rave on about how important this film is and how they managed to create scares without obviously showing you the sort of gore that you got with like the early 80s slashes and that. Yeah, and, and it's important to, to you make the distinction that for, for all the talk of the fact that there aren't really cat people in this, the movie tries to play a lot with ambiguity in terms of the fact that there is a panther running around town that has been escaped from the zoo. So as you're watching the movie, you're tempted to say, well, is it Arena or is it the actual panther that's escaped? So the audience kind of becomes as paranoid as the characters which I think is effective. Um, and the, the loot and bust thing 
it's just it's a really fun gimmick. I, I really like the swimming pool scene a bit more than the bus scene itself. Just because, A, it makes no sense. Why she would jump in the pool when she feels that she's being stalked is beyond me. But I love the way the shadows play on the wall. Um, yeah. And it's that one moment where I think Arena... That's, that's one thing that I kind of fault the movie for, is that Arena starts out as very, very fearful of this curse. That she doesn't want to hurt people. And when she goes to confront Alice at the pool, she's got that kind of knowing smirk, like, you know, oh, did I scare you? I totally did that on purpose. Mm. Um, and she, you kind of wonder if, if she's just kind of still afraid or if that's all an act and she's kind of become a mean girl. Um, but at the same time, Simone Simons just got that face that is so cherubic where you just you don't want to believe that she's bad, but it would be so awesome if she just kind of owned it. I understand what you're saying there. For myself, I don't think there was any sort of doubt that it is Arena who's somehow turning into a panther. The actual history behind it and the curse with uh, obviously uh, King John of Serbia slaughtering all the pagan villagers, they all being this big curse, it kind of it seems a bit too schlocky. Um, for myself, the most effective scene in the, and one of my favorite scenes in the whole film is when um, Oliver goes to buy her a, buy her a kitten. And they walk in the pet shop, and all the animals start freaking out, and then she walks out, and they just all calm down again. That's horror movie 101, people. If you're dating somebody, and animals start freaking out around them, you need to, to dump them right now. <laughs> yeah. I have to, like, question, though. I mean, she's there saying to Oliver that she believes that cats represent evil. So why is he buying her a kitten? Because he's a dick. I mean, that's that's pretty much all I say about this movie. He's a horrible, horrible character. I hate him, because he's just... Why would you do that? Because he doesn't believe her, and he's just a jerk. That's at least how I, I rationalize mm. it, because I hate his character so much. And you're right. I mean, obviously, he does, around the halfway point to this side, he's going to hook up with um, Alice. And it's frustrating, the fact that you know from the instance that it's introduced that he has a female friend that she can't be anything but a romantic, another romantic interest. She can't just be the plutonic friend. And I think it's a lot to do with the sort of time the film was made that the idea of obviously having plutonic friendships is a bit kind of out there for filmmaking if there's any potential to have someone be a love interest then one way or another we're, they're eventually going to become it so yeah when i think she even makes that kind of snide aside that she's the threat to to married women so she knows she knows exactly what she's doing which is why you you i i feel you can never really root for those characters, even though you're supposed to, you're still firmly rooting for Arena, if only because those other two were just horrid people. Yeah. Again, the best scenes that we have in the film are the scenes where uh, you got Simon and Randolph uh, sort of like facing off each other. And you can tell that Arena knows there's something going on yeah. with Alice and Oliver, but at the same time, she has no sort of evidence. And then it sort of like links in nicely the fact that. Alice is suddenly being stalked by this mysterious big cat. The ending, um, I have to say, is a bit weak um, and sort of feels like, oh, we have very gonna... classic. It's a, it's a very classic film wrap up, you know, in terms of the the panther getting getting hit and then uh, Arena's demise. Just she's being she has such a pretty death and and all of that, and everybody lives happily ever after. And I, I still just am like. 
no, she should be alive and those two should be dead. Which, again, if, if, if you go on and see Curse of the Cat people, um, it's still that similar dynamic. You are not rooting for, for Oliver and Alice, who are in the sequel married with the daughter. Um, you're rooting for Arena because she comes back and you're like, yes, finally, she's seeking the revenge of these two total jerks that treated her, that tried to commit her. There is a third act commitment in, the thir- in this film where they're like, well, maybe we should just try to commit her and everything would work out. And you're like, wow, you're plotting. If you have to plot of putting a person in a mental institution without their consent, then you're obviously doing something shady. Yeah. I mean, the film itself, it sells itself as being a horror film. But essentially yes. what we get here is a study of female sexuality, would you say? Yeah. It's it's very much kind of a psychological thriller, at least from my perspective. And yeah, I mean, the, the sexual elements, specifically regarding women, are really fascinating. Because um, not only are you dealing with the, the whole concept of what makes you know, the good girl and the bad girl, you know, that if she has sex and actually wants to, she's going to turn into a Black Panther, which is just rife with its own implications. But there's also the scene um, where she's in the Serbian restaurant and she's met, uh, another woman meets her, comes up to her. And, um, I think that that actress is specifically played in several, several of um, Val Luton's films um, throughout, throughout the rest of her career. And her name is Elizabeth Russell. That's the name. Um, she comes up and she's wearing these weird little like cat ears. And she uh, goes up to Arena and says, Moisestra, which means my sister. And there's actually been a lot of writing about whether that means some sort of lesbian connotation. That, and then that opens up a whole other way of reading the movie that, you know, if Arena can't have these romantic feelings for her husband and ends up stalking another woman, you know, what does that say? So. Yeah. This is really not so much a horror movie, but a really good case study for showing how, you know, horror films, and I mean all horror films, there's been countless books written about how horror films really are the best ways to look at in terms of exploring gender and sexuality, and especially, you know, queer readings as well. So, I mean, this movie kind of touches on all those facts. Oh, undoubtedly. There's something about the horror genre, especially that does lend itself very well to feminist thought. And as you said, there have been several great books written on the subject of feminism within within the horror universe. I know certainly B, uh, B.J. Colangio, uh for Day of the Woman, she's done a number of pieces uh, just on, looking at the feminist aspects of various films from The Thing um, and Friday the 13th. So if you're certainly looking for some good reading uh, for feminist thoughts on horror, I certainly recommend checking out Day of the Woman. Um, it's a good starting point. Um, it's it's non, not too heavy, um, and it's well-thought-out pieces and gives you a nice uh, starting point, really. And you can obviously go on to the heavier uh, sort of pieces from there. But anything sort of further you uh, have uh, have on this one, then? Well, I'm trying to think of anything else that we didn't touch on, but um, this is... This is a great, I think, opening to kind of seeing other Val Luton movies. And, there, I mean, Val Luton made a very contained body of work. And all of the films, even if they're not good, um, like I really don't care for, um, I don't remember the one on the boat. Um, but there's a couple that I don't really care for. I think it's go- a ghost ship. That's the one that I don't really care for. They're all very much like this, where you can read them through different different lenses. So something like The Leopard Man actually confronting, um, actually one of the films that's considered the first serial killer in, in cinema is in The Leopard Man, which I think came out uh, the year after this. 
Um, or something like I Walk With a Zombie, which is actually a zombified version of Jane Eyre, um, which again came out the year after this. And these are all really, I mean, Cat People especially, you're right in the midst of World War II, um, so you have all these questions of what's going to happen to the women once the men come back from war. And Cat People really plays on the fact that if we leave our women too long, you know, they could become subversive and, you know, they probably are doing, you know, illicit things in the shadows that we don't know about. So they really play, again, on kind of that World War II fears that eventually would kind of become even bigger in 1950s films. Oh. Um, further viewing, if you do like Cat People, um, where would you still go next? Uh, Curse of the Cat People, definitely. Um, it's it's a sequel in, in spirit. Um, it does have both Oliver and Alice reprising their roles. They have a daughter played by um, Ann Carter. And Arena is the daughter's imaginary friend. And it's not a horror film. It's really more of a, a fantasy in terms of how children create imaginary worlds to combat how lonely they are. And Oliver is, again, a total jerk. So, you know, you'll hate him just as much, but it's a really, really great sequel. Um, and then other Val Luton movies, I mean, they're, they're all good. Um, I Walked With the Zombie is fun. Um, Seventh Victim has, has the Judd character um, played by Tom Conway. He comes back. It's about Satanists, but they're really, really nice Satanists. <laughs> um, so Val Luton films are always fun to watch just because he goes completely where you wouldn't expect. So those are those are definitely ones to, to watch. I have not finished the, the remake of Cat People um, with Malcolm McDowell. I didn't care for it, but if you think that Cat People's a little too tame and you want to see some weird, like violent incesty stuff, then go go watch the '80s remake. Maybe you'll yeah. like that more. The '80s remake um, again. I only checked it out just purely as a curiosity, especially because it's got Michael McDowell in, who's normally makes most things passable it's it's certainly less subtle than this film should we say that's uh, what i figured i only watched about um like 15 to 20 minutes and already i was like um i'm good i felt the payoff at the end was better uh I, yeah I, I have to say I, I probably will go back and finish it at some point <laughs> but i think what i was expecting and what i got was was two very different things that just overwhelmed me yeah, I think that was very much the case going into this one. This was, again, first time watched for myself. I went into it thinking it was going to be sort of a straightforward horror film. I wasn't expecting a study of the female sexuality, which I got sort of inadvertently with this film. The pacing, again, I felt they kind of dragged in places. So it was a bit of a slog for myself, and I think mainly because I was going in expecting something different than what I got. So some prior warning, obviously, does help if you're going to go into this one. Uh, okay. if you. If you're just like a Valutin fan, I think, as you said, then there is uh, a lot to still enjoy here. Certainly from a filmmaking, film historian sort of standpoint, it is still an important movie, just for obviously the fact it did give us the jump scare or Luton bus, if we're still going to keep the technical terms. Um, so while it, were, it might not show, show anything major in terms of like gore and violence, there are other films which again have done the same sort of thing better. I feel that Psycho uh, will be my prime example. You don't see anything in Psycho, but again, it's I found it a lot more effective film than this film. Whether it's the fact it was Hitchcock, who's obviously a master of his genre, and that obviously helped it, I really couldn't say. But uh, I'd safe to say this one uh, divides opinion. I, when I posted that I didn't like it, I managed to get a few angry treats, especially from Will over at uh, Exploding Helicopters, who's also a fan of this. So I think it's myself who's uh, the odd one for not liking it. 
Well, I definitely think it's one of those where even if you don't like it, you can still appreciate the fact that it is first, and it obviously has been the inspiration for so many other movies. So, if anything, as kind of an essential piece of cinema, if you're, you know, a true cinephile, you kind of you kind of have to do your due diligence and see it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we return, we'll be looking at Todd Browning's legendary freeze. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. And we're back. Uh, Still joining me in the studio this evening is Kristen. Hello, everybody. In the first half of the show, we covered the classic uh, cat people. Classic could be uh, perhaps argued, depending on uh, where you stand on that one. But... The second film we're going to be discussing this evening is really a film which could be considered the granddaddy of exploitation cinema. It's a film directed by Todd Browning, and it's called Freaks. The film itself, released back in 1932, is notorious uh, for not only the fact that it managed to kill Todd Browning's career, but being a pre-code movie meant that Browning was able to use real sideshow performers to tell his story of the dwarf uh, ringmaster known as Hans who's being set up to be swindled out of his money by the conniving trapeze artist Cleopatra and it's really up to his fellow freaks to really save him from being killed off and as Cleopatra essentially plans to run off with his money with the circus strongman Hercules. The film when it was released as I said it served to kill Browning's career which now looking back on it it's now reviewed seen as being a classic and back then it was a source of just major controversy there was people just calling for it to be banned and just be scrapped over out over and it's unfortunate really because there was a lot of footage that was actually lost as a result of the controversy that surrounded its original release but opening thoughts on this one christian what's your thoughts on freaks i have seen this um several times and it's just a wonderful film that I don't think has ever really gotten the due that it deserved. Um, and I mean, it was negatively received by audiences when it came out, actually lost about $164,000. And yeah, as you mentioned, ruined Todd Browning's career. Um, and he had been riding high, um, after collaborating with Lon Chaney, he directed Bella Lugosi and Dracula, and he uh, could never really find work after this. And it's really sad. Um, he based this on, stuff that he had seen in his own life he himself was a circus performer um and and kind of drew what he wanted in terms of showing that that the quote-unquote freaks were people um and he he fought very hard to get them treated the same way as everybody else he wanted them to eat in the the commissary and the the regular stars told them no they didn't want them there it made them uncomfortable and there was again a lot of footage that was filmed of them doing just humanizing them um, that was was cut out for time and because the societal expectations at that time were that these people were horrifying and had to be villainous. Um, there's a great scene where there's a group of microcephalics who are 
just having fun by a riverside and even though the, the the woman that's caring for them says well they're like children it's still that element that they are just normal people trying to live their lives and there was that actually went on a lot longer and they cut it um and obviously i'm sure we'll talk about the ending that they cut out um but this is a great movie and i mean as somebody who who has a lives her life in a wheelchair it's one of those movies where you know i really understand appreciate what browning was trying to do yes it goes into that horror element in the third act but it really tries to justify that as much as it can with you know it's a 64 minute movie and there's about 60 minutes of it that's spent with just trying to show the day-to-day of these circus performers and how really the the enemy is the able-bodied people <laughs> because um you know uh, cleopatra who's played by the beautiful olga baklanova is just a drunken bitch uh, who wants to steal his money so if anything you're kind of again much like cat people you're rooting for the people that should quote unquote be the villains just because in 1932 that's how they were perceived yeah my first i would say my first experience of the film i would say was around 99 that i saw it i was in college i was going for that sort of period where you're looking for films that are either deemed controversial or offensive so i was like looking at uh films such as the doom generation nowhere uh the films of john waters things like pink flamingos and obviously freaks comes up and you you go into it and there is that sort of oh we're gonna watch a bunch of sideshow freaks and that's the sort of appeal but when you actually watch the film it's a lot deeper than that that you watch it and you realize that the so-called normal people are in fact the real freaks because you're brought in and you become part of this family that these sideshow performers have formed for themselves you mentioned already that uh, browning was from a circus background he was a former escape artist before he became a director there is a really great uh, book called the monster show which charts the history of horror and it goes into great depth about this film um, as well as the background for browning himself so if you are a fan of this film and looking for a bit more background because there is no unfortunately no official sort of biography for browning Um, he really became a recluse after this film sort of killed his career and when you look at the cast here we have really the who's who of sideshow performers we've got people like johnny eck the half boy who um for the longest time had an ongoing rivalry with, with um howard ramus um of safety last fame they had originally started off as a swim contest with johnny eck won uh, despite being just a torso he managed to beat uh the the able-bodied man that then led to a flagpole climbing contest which again johnny eck won and out of the cast i mean johnny eck would become this sort of countercultural figure joey ramone was openly a big fan and used to constantly promote johnny eck for his time for the ramones we've also got people like daisy and violet hilton they're probably the next sort of more famous when you obviously look at the, what they would obviously be honoured uh, you had several musicals such as like the 1989 musical 20 Fingers 20 Toes um, and then more recently you had Sideshow which was originally done in 97 and then revived in 2014 um, and again in 2012 we had Leslie Zemick's documentary Bound by Flesh which sort of charted the sisters live but again when we see the freaks I mean from the start you do have that sort of 
opening revulsion, I would say, to the various disabilities. And then you obviously learn about these performers and you start to feel for them. And you don't view them for their disabilities, you just view them as normal people. I mean, I don't know obviously how you view the film, film Kristen, if you view it in the same sort of way or... Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely appreciate what what Browning was trying to do, and it's it's one of those films where, a, we would never remake it today, uh, especially under that title, uh, mostly because a lot of these issues that these circus performers suffered from, and I don't, I hate to use the word suffered, but lived with, are not common today with modern medicine. So I mean, um, the microcephalics, especially. Um, probably best embodied with the character of Schlitzie, who does the, the weird little bird dance during the um, the Loving Cup scene. Um, there's actually a really great story about a group of people that did crowdfunding to try to get him a headstone. Because um, I guess he, he was just kind of in an a unmarked grave, and they actually got him one. It was a really sweet story. But, but microcephalics aren't common in today's day and age because of prenatal care and all of that. So you don't really, and that's essentially, you know, the issue of why the sideshow, not just because it was commonly seen as demeaning, but also why it died out was because a lot of these sideshow quote-unquote freaks, these were illnesses that were easily to prevent um, as modern medicine, you know, expanded. So... Um, and to go back on, on what you were saying about some of the, the famous faces here, yeah, the, the Hilton sisters, the first set of Hilton sisters, before we have the Hilton sisters we know now, um, they, there's actually a really great story, uh, biography about them, um, The Lives and Loves of Daisy and Violet Hilton that I reviewed, that's an amazing book, talking about their life and how they were essentially the A-list stars of this film, and essentially kind of were, were the victims of a lot of... Um, Poor scheming, bad money deals, mm. some really horrific um, publicity stunts. That it's you know it's amazing that they you know survive with their sanity intact. That's a great one to read. And the the Earls family, you have Harry and Daisy Earls who play Hans and Frida, lovers, but were actually brother and sister. Were part of the Earls family. I think they were called like the Doll family. That's right. They were essentially, yeah, the most famous um, little people at that time so if anything they're more famous than you know the 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 a-list uh, the actual human actors but for me this is a great film to watch because it's rare to see so many people who are incredibly disabled in one film leading this film actually i mean you know you watch and i i we were talking about this earlier when i was talking about you know eddie redmayne playing a handicapped person it's very easy today to make films where you have able-bodied people playing disabled people and winning Oscars for it. Whereas you have this movie, which actually does have people who are living with, with difficulties and, and are, are differently abled. I hate that term, but it's you know the best yeah. one I can think of right now. But you know who are not victims of empathy. You're not supposed to feel sorry for them. And the movie was you know critically reviled. And it just kind of makes you think now, you know, if we could... We live in a world where... We have Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and we just kind of take able-bodied actors and CGI them into dwarf shape, you know? So you're kind of like, whoa, what's the point? And this movie actually has people living that lifestyle and are able to lead a film. So it's it's both of its time, yet we have come so far from this that I doubt we would ever see anything this, you know, intriguing, even though it was an exploitation film when it came out. And it's still kind of exploitative, but we, you know, you, you got to give it some credit for at least having people who understood that life playing that type of character, because we would not have that today. Yeah. I mean, you obviously mentioned uh, Harry Earls um, and his sister Daisy. 
as you said, they were members of the uh, the troupe, the Dole family. I mean, it was Harry who really brought the film to Browning's attention. He uh, basically showed him the the original uh, short story, uh, Spurs. Um, and I mean, Harry had originally worked with Browning of, on the Lon Chaney film, The Unholy Free, then, back in 1925. And we'd obviously see the Dole family again. They would played the Munchkins in The Wizard of Oz. Um, but this was... I would say their best known film, I would say. And while they all have, again, I don't want to say disabilities, but they obviously have what have like their various conditions which cause people to conceive them as being the so-called freaks. We have like Prince Ranadin, who is the hu- living torso or the human caterpillar as he's in the film. He actually had five kids. Um, and here we see him roll and smoke a cigarette. In one of the greatest scene. moments in the film. Yeah, well, that's that's one thing I really like is those kind of slice of life moments that Browning had to cut, um, because you see each one of them for the most part has some type of subplot. Like the um, the Hilton sisters are one of them's getting married and the kind of issues that are complicated by that because you know there's almost some kind of screwball comic antics with the husband trying to you know argue with the one sister mm. wanting to spend time with the other one. Um, and again, it kind of was a life imitating art thing because they they did have relationships that ended very poorly uh, with them actually being being brought up on charges of bigamy because the question was, well, how can one man marry one half of a woman? It, it was ridiculous, but you know that's the the life they faced. Um, and even you know um, Hans and Frida have these kind of moments where Frida talks to Venus, played by Leela Himes, about you know the the concept of the fact that she is different than Cleopatra and that, you know, Hans being a, being an average guy thinks that, you know, Cleopatra is a hot piece. And, you know, why would he look at Frida when he's got, you know, this hot girl totally, you know, laying it on thick for him. Mind you, she has her own motivation. So, I mean, there are a lot of great moments of just minutia in trying to show how these people are no different than us aside from their physical limitations. Um, and it's sad that there were a lot more subplots um, that were cut out, including, you know, the, the bearded woman had a subplot. Frances O'Connor, the armless wonder, as she was called, you know, had, had more scenes showing how she used her feet in place of her arms. So there were a lot of just really more random day-to-day things that really humanized them that the studio said, nope, cut it out. Yeah. And again, you obviously have this the romantic uh, element, even if it is completely false on Cleopatra's side. But the poster itself, um, it says, can a full-grown woman truly love a midget? And this is the selling point for the film. And you've obviously got Hans sitting on Cleopatra's lap on the poster, and you've got Heracles looking on from the side there. And again, it's that shock and awe sort of tactic that this is what they're using as their sort of... um, sort of flagpole uh, sort of statement for the for the film. Yeah, and, and it's it really does play into kind of those 1930s, 1940s kind of exploitation films like, mm. you know, um, My, My Baby is Black, you know, the, the concept, that's a real film, people. Um, the the whole, let's, let's make a, mo- a grotesque marketing s- scheme and it'll be, you know, people will love it. And the way that scene actually plays out with Cleopatra treating Hans like a baby and, you know, putting him on her shoulders and, and that wedding sequence especially 
is just so humiliating and so demeaning that people going to see that, looking at that poster, expecting one thing, and then seeing that scene play out are going to feel like total jerks because they assumed that it was going to be this, you know, smutty, exploitative freak show. And it's actually a moment where our main character, you feel the most sympathetic for him because he's being treated like garbage. Mm. It's understandable. I mean, the freaks themselves, they bring Cleopatra into their circle. And yeah. they have that famous now one of us um, chant. And you obviously Which, have... Can um, I just say, when they, when they use that scene, they actually mimic that scene in The Wolf of Wall Street. I was the only one who was so happy to hear it, and nobody else understood what it was from. Yeah, it's um, I know the Ramones also referenced it as well. You obviously in the scene you have uh, Angeli, uh, Angelo Rossito, um, who is probably best known for playing uh, Master in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and he does a little dance on the table, and she's just completely freaks out, and she throws the champagne in his face, and the whole scene you're, you're thinking that these people they're bringing her in they essentially see her as being the freak um yeah they don't see yeah. themselves you, you as being and, freaks and that's the one thing where you know people there's pros and cons for that scene that concept of of them being kind of an exclusive club um that is both isolating and both in in kind of accepting at the same time um, I hate to say it, it played out, it, that plays out, that dichotomy plays out very well in an episode of South Park where Butters, Butters goes on the Maury show um, and tries to play up the fact that he's disabled and realizes that people don't like it when you pretend you're disabled. But that scene in Freaks is just so iconic because it really just ramps up to a crescendo so that by the time Cleopatra gives that immortal speaking of the title, calling them all freaks, you're like, oh no. This movie is just taking a turn into left field, and it's gonna get real. Because the movie opens with them at the like freak show and going through, you know, um, kind of the flashback. The, the, the Most of the movie opens in flashback um, as the carnival barker shows them something so horrible that, you know, they have to explain what it is. And you're wondering, you know, what that is throughout the back of your mind. And when you get to that wedding sequence, you're like, oh, no, this is going to tell us what that horrible thing is in that box. Yeah, it's as it, it has that wonderful, wonderful uh, way of it starts with this one scene. And by the time we've gone through the story, we're in a completely different place than we were when we started the film. And I like the fact that Browning balances out. I mean, true, in one hand, he's been sort of tasked with delivering this exploitation picture, but his background within the circus um, means that he doesn't want his performance to be seen as the, the circle freaks. And I love those slice of life segments, as you said, that we have, like the scene where you have the conjoined twins and Violet, um, one of the sisters, she's engaged to one of the clowns and they kiss and her sister smiles. And it's just an absolutely wonderful scene. And we've obviously got the scene where, where we've obviously got uh, the, the human caterpillar where he rolls and smokes a cigarette but again this whole scene it's just three guys sitting around having a conversation having a smoke you know it's just a bit of downtime it's not played up like oh look at this guy he's got no limbs look what he can do i mean there was another scene again this was suddenly cut where it shows him shaving with like a razor blade and a block of wood but there's so much footage that is missing from this film it's just kind of sad when you obviously hear about some of the scenes that they shot but have now essentially been lost to uh, the annals of time. 
um, just purely because of how this film was received. There was no sort of attempt to sort of make, keep a sort of pristine final cut at all. The, the only cuts we have are sort of these butchered exploitation sort of cuts. Yeah, and that's that's really common with a lot of movies from the 30s. I mean, you know, we probably should just be lucky that we have any version of this at all, considering. Mm. But, I mean, this was shown in, in 32 with, you know, so many disastrous screenings that there were claims that the film caused a woman to suffer a miscarriage, that the studio not only cut it to 90 minutes, or it was originally 90 minutes, they cut it down to just over an hour. And that excised um, the sequence of the freaks attacking Cleopatra under a tree, the, the scene of Hercules essentially getting his demise, um, a bunch of comedy moments, the slices of life, and the film's original epilogue, the original ending. And that prologue with the carnival burger was new. That was all redone. Um, and the epilogue that, that features Hans and Frida kind of reconciling at the end. Um, so it's it's very sad what, what kind of the butchering that this this received and at the same time it's important enough that the um library of congress has considered it um a film to to protect and preserve so i mean we have both pros and cons um mm. but how do you feel about i mean the original ending versus the ending that we have i mean the the ending that we have we obviously have cleopatra's turned into the duck woman hercules his fate is left is is left unsaid but obviously in the original cut he's castrated he's singing as a falsetto um in the in the original ending and i would have really liked to have seen that scene because in many ways it seems that cleopatra in the cut that we have cleopatra's sort of left as the uh main one to blame when she's actually in sort of this conspiracy with hercules um Obviously, being a fan of the film, I would love to have seen a, a pure, uncut version. I don't think we're ever going to see it unless there's one in a vault somewhere that is yet to be found, along with maybe a copy of The Day the Clown Cried. I think it's just going to be one of those <laughs> things that we're never going to ever see. Yeah, I, I mean, the original ending sounds fantastic, and, and you're right. It does. The impetus is all put on Cleopatra at the end of this movie. We watch her be humiliated when really, you know... Hercules is just as much to blame, but it goes all the way back to 1932 with Hollywood being afraid of doing anything with male genitalia. Mm. I mean, it's even worse now, but it goes back all the way to 32. It's, um, uh, it's really surprising, especially because this is pre-code Hollywood. Yes, exactly. And that's it really, it's considered pre-code. It is pre-code, but really, I, I hear a lot of people talk about, oh, it's pre-code because they're circus people. Really? Really, I, I kind of have to call call BS on that. But um, at the same time, I mean, the happy ending with Hans and Frida reunited is cute, even though, unfortunately, because that cut, I think, has suffered so much. Um, if you watch the DVD, even an official DVD, that, that final sequence is so washed out and bright because, obviously, it was done at a different time and it's been kind of tacked on. So, so most DVD cuts, you can tell where the original ends and the the new stuff begins um and it's i'm hoping that someday maybe mgm or someone whoever owns this will kind of clean it up a little bit um but yeah I, I mean that's a nice that's a nice ending but at the same time it just kind of seems a little bit pat although it is nice that these two you know quote-unquote freaks are able to find love and move on but you know it's at the expense of a lot of other stuff that really would have humanized them I mean, just to rewind slightly, I have to say that while the film is, is classed as being a horror film, interestingly enough, even though 
there's no real sort of horror elements, obviously, despite the, I suppose that the, the, to use the, obviously the film's title, The Freaks, are assumed to be the horror uh, of this film. But while you obviously get to know these characters and you, you get to love being around these characters and their individual quirks and their lives and, and that, the final scene where they're basically chasing down Cleopatra is surprisingly powerful and shocking. The scene where, especially just the scene where you see um, Angelo Rossini, and he's standing in the by the doorway, and he's he's there like a like a mini hood there when he's like leaning on the doorway and he's there with his switchblade, and it's surprisingly effective. And it only gets more effective when you see him running through the woods in the rain, and you see like uh, see the characters like crawling through the mud chasing after her. It's a surprisingly shocking and powerful scene that these good-natured uh, people have just suddenly took on this like mob mentality and decided they're going to go and get their vengeance for Hans it, because he can't. He's obviously too in love with Cleopatra. He can't see through the illusion that he still thinks that she's in love with him, beside the fact that she's poisoning him and slowly plotting to kill him off. Yeah, that that end sequence I think is what most people remember. And it is definitely effective, if only at the expense of turning them into kind of like a gang of hoodlums. Mm. Um, but it is it is a scene that is necessary, because how else are you going to kind of, quote, get the justice? I mean, you know, having them go to the police wouldn't have worked. Um, and it's, it's also, I mean, the way it ends at the same time with that happy ending does pretty much put them in the positive light, that they were in the right. And that, you know, Cleopatra definitely deserved it. Um, and to go back to what we were kind of saying about them being humanized, it's interesting to find out that, you know, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald was actually writing at MGM for at the time and felt so out of place that he actually would eat with the, the cast. And not not the human, like, human, excuse, uh, not the able-bodied cast, but the, the sideshow performer cast. So he felt like he was very much a part of them, which was fantastic. And the original casting for this, they originally asked um, Victor McLaughlin to play Hercules, Myrna Loy to play Cleopatra, and Jean Harlow to play Venus. And all of them said, hell no, because they didn't want to be, with, uh, quote, quote unquote, with sideshow exhibitions. So it kind of makes you feel like, A, they're, they're, they're asses for turning that down. But at the same time that, you know, if you had A-list stars in this movie, mm. I think you would have felt bad for them and not the, the characters of Hans and the rest of them that you should feel bad for. I mean, it's funny you should obviously say that because you have people like Olga Roderick, who appears here as the bearded lady, and she felt that she was above the production. She felt it was very demeaning um, and that she should have been portrayed in a much better light than she actually was, even though... It could be argued the freaks have portrayed in the most positive light of anyone in this film. Yeah, and I, I have to wonder if, if they felt felt that after seeing how the film had been cut. That's mm. at least my interpretation, is that, yeah, if you're seeing how the film was cut and what you were you filmed, then yeah, it does kind of try very hard to present them in a demeaning light, but considering how bad it could have been, yeah, it could have been a lot worse. I mean, it's kind of sad, really, that a lot of the performers, I mean, a lot of them uh, died very poor or destitute. Um, obviously, with the, with the Hiltons, they were essentially dumped on the road by their so-called manager. Um, yeah, they, they um, 
the Hiltons especially, there were a series of really poor publicity stunts where they ended up getting married to men that were just doing it for publicity and they lost all their money. They did um, a couple of films that were truly terrible. I've, I've seen one. It's called um, Chained, Chained for Life or something like that. It's a, it's a horrid film. Um, and then they ended up working in a grocery store for the rest of their life um, until they died. And uh, actually, one of them died first, and the other one was kind of stuck with her until the other one died. Um, it's a really, really shocking story, and it's all in the book. Um, and then, yeah, obviously, Schlitzy ended up dying um, to the point, you know, he didn't even have a headstone when he passed away. So, and, and the, um, the able-bodied cast, Olga Baklanova said that she was typecast and blackballed after making this movie. Um, and I don't think Leela Hyams or Wallace Ford or Henry Victor... Um, were ever big names um, after this movie, so a lot of a lot of careers kind of came and went um, after this. Um, Leva Hyams did do, I mean, a bunch of other movies, um, some of them rather big, but um, she did do Island of the Lost Souls that same year, um, Redheaded Woman. But really, her career kind of petered out in about thirty six, so a, a, not a lot of success for the cast of this film. Yeah, I also love the fact that. With this film, it was only really the exploitation sort of circuit, the midnight sort of film uh, circuit that sort of picked up this film again. I would say this was like in the mid-60s, early 70s, it got picked up. It wasn't the revivalist crowd who picked this up. It was really the midnight cinema crowd who picked this up. They picked up this film and films like Reefer Madness, the sort of hysteria films like the 1950s and films like Edwards, Glen or Glenda. And it's only really through those uh, sort of cinemas picking up the film and showing it and it was being finally finding in its audience like 40 years after it's released and it was being appreciated for the true classic it is so i feel that the film does owe a great debt to the sort of exploitation circuit and it rightfully is the uh, granddaddy of all exploitation cinema because everything that followed is essentially tried to outshock and outdo what this film was doing just by essentially featuring real everyday people. Yeah, and I have to think that, you know, the the 60s and 70s counterculture in terms of feeling like they were outcast, you know, against the man um, and with all the, the issues going on revol- revolving around, you know, Vietnam and, and the civil rights movement, that a lot of the movies that they did pick up and embrace were really about ac- outcasts and marginalized members of society. This and, you know, something like Glenda Glenda, um, or Plan 9 from Outer Space. So this really did get that second coming in terms of portraying, being being embraced by people who did not feel one with society, much like the cast of this movie. Obviously, further viewing, if you do like uh, Todd Browning's Freaks, where would you uh, go next? Uh, it's hard to top this, especially without going into just kind of smut. But, I mean, Todd Browning, he did Dracula. That's kind of the, the you know big de facto universal film um i recommend that um i know you mentioned bound by flesh the documentary about the hilton sisters that's definitely one to watch if you want to learn more about them and i mean just kind of puttering around there's not a whole lot of movies like this so you're really just kind of touching kind of the sides of what these movies were um island of the lost souls is another one that that's worth looking at um it's got Leva Hyams in it um, came out during that same year. Um, any pre-code film, really, I mean, none of them are going to be branded as such because of this. Most of them were because of, you know, sexuality or drugs or gambling. But, you know, they're definitely worth seeing in terms of just how kind of guiltless they were about 
the the shenanigans they were doing. Yeah. For myself, if you do want to see uh, some more good Todd Browning, then either The Unknown from 1927, uh, another Lon Chaney vehicle, or, as we mentioned already, The Unholy Free are good companion pieces. Um, another book would be um, Catherine Dunn's Geek Love, uh, about a family of sideshow performers. Um, essentially, we have the ringmaster who falls in love with the geek and the woman who bites the heads off chickens and decide to breed their own sideshow it truly captures really the spirit of freaks and sort of updates it in a way for a more modern audience it's really the only book that Catherine Dunn did that really got sort of any sort of knowledge and it has sort of been kicking around the the sort of like development circuit for a while I know Johnny Depp was attached to it for a while Tim Burton again while he was sort of going through that sort of 90s uh, oddball sort of phase where he was doing films like Batman and Edward Scissorhands was once attached to it, but now it sort of drifted away into sort of more sort of more mainstream sort of quirkiness. Um, so I, I do want to throw out there um, that you know obviously something like uh, the Elephant Man. I forgot to to think about that. Um, Thank you. But there's also there was also talk uh, back in '08 that Jodie Foster was going to um, direct a film called Flora Plum um, about sideshow oddities. Um, And I don't think that ever really happened, Um, but it would have been nice to see. And there's been talk about her trying to kind of resurrect that. um, I think that's the movie that that I'm thinking of. Um, But she tried, I know Jodie Foster was associated and she was trying to do something like that. um, That was about circus um, performers that was in the vein of the elephant man. Um, that would have been that would have been pretty awesome. I mean, the Elephant Man again. Uh, don't know why that went uh, past me, but the Elephant Man again. It's uh, it's another great example of cruelty on the sideshow circuit. It's an incredibly sad film in many ways. It features absolute well two standout performances: one from Anthony Hopkins and the other from John Hurt. Am I right in saying? I think yeah. I think yeah. Um, it's also um, a rarity because it's one of David Lynch's few straight films and it's produced by Mel Brooks of all people Uh, Mel Brooks obviously being best known for his screwball comedies but let's not forget Mel Brooks also produced the Cronenberg uh, 80s remake of The Fly so it seems that in some way um, even though he's never gone on record to say it Brooks has always had this sort of fascination with body dysmorphia, mutation, as just seen from the examples of the films he's producing with films like The Fly and The Elephant Man. Both films really uh, essential viewing if you've not seen them already. But um, before we obviously wrap up this one, I mean, is there anything you want to add to about uh, Freaks? No, I think it's one of those that can never be imitated, although, you know, there are a lot of kind of side... um, illusions i think directors kind of try to borrow from it as much as they can but you're never going to get anything like that again okay i mean one sort of talking point on this film obviously with the most recent edition of american horror story it had its sideshow theme and myself it felt like it was trying to rework freaks did you first of all first of all did you watch it I did not watch it, but I did hear a lot of comparison. Well, I think actually we had the microcephalic character um, in previous versions of American Horror Story. I think she showed up in two or episode two or three, um, season two or three is yeah Pepper, 
Um, and it was very much apparent that, that Ryan Murphy was trying to borrow from Freaks. Mm. Ryan Murphy, for myself, is just probably the biggest hack going. The man's not really done anything particularly of note since Nip Tuck, as seen by the fact Lee fell into the toilet around season two. American Horror Story's just been a, basically about shock and awe. And there was, there was a lot of elements about... Every time I tried to get into American Horror Story, I got to around the halfway point and felt, this has still got another six or so episodes to go. I'm pretty much done at this point. Um, and again, there was a lot of aspects of a freak show that just didn't particularly sit with myself. It had it had a couple of good moments, but you can't help but think in your mind that, oh, Todd Browning did all this, but better. So, uh, yeah. I don't know. I would, I would say watch Freaks first, uh, before you watch uh, American Horror Story Season 4 Freak Show, if you haven't already. It's hard to watch one without comparing the other, I would say. I would I would agree. Um, but he did uh, try and obviously go for that branding thing by featuring real uh, sort of performance by featuring Matt Frazier. If you've not heard of Matt Frazier, he was born with uh, preoclemia in both arms, which means that he's born essentially with shorter arms. And while he's obviously gone on to talk a lot about dis- disability and that, he does unfortunately get my goat up by um, believing, by saying that if an able-bodied person plays um, a disabled performer in any role, that it's called blacking up. That he feels that only disabled performers should be playing disabled sort of characters. So. I don't like the term... But I get the intent, and I—I I mean, I mean, I'm one of those where I get the the argument that yes, it's the right person for the right role. But when you're limiting yourself to just able-bodied people, then you're not really looking for the right person for the right role. You're looking for mm. your definition of the right person for the right role. I mean, uh, I should obviously clarify just my own standpoint on this is that I feel that. When it comes to casting the role, it should always be the right person for the right role, regardless of if they're born with the disability that you're looking for. And disability is probably the wrong word I'm looking for, so I do apologize if it's coming off a bit clumsy there. Or to cast um, a so-called able-bodied person, I believe that the right person for the right role, I don't believe that you should be casting someone with a role just because they have the disability that you happen to be needing for what the particular role. So I feel that... By him saying blacking up, I feel that it's perhaps... Yeah, that's a uh, poor term. That's a poor term to describe it, but yeah. I get the intent. I mean, it's it's one of those where you can really make that argument, I think, with any minority, but it's more so with with disabled who are probably more marginalized in society, in film especially, than, you know, than any minority group. I mean... Try to name the last movie that actually had somebody with a disability in it, a major Hollywood film. You're not going to find it. So I definitely think it would be nice to see more disabled people in just roles that don't require, you know, ability or disability. There, um, if anybody's seen the documentary Cinemability, which actually talks about disability in cinema, it's a brilliant doc. Um, but they actually asked directors, you know, why don't you have more people with disabilities in your films? And I think it was William H. Macy who said, it's not that I don't want to write roles with people with, for, dis- with, for people with disabilities, it's just that I don't think of them. Mm. And that's really the saddest thing, is that, you know, when people are writing scripts, 
you know, you can say, okay, well, I, I, I didn't write my role for a Caucasian person. It needs to be an African-American or something like that. But most people would be hard-pressed when you ask them, well, does this role require somebody who's able-bodied or disabled? They would be like, I didn't even think of that. But obviously I want able. But, you know, the question is why are they thinking that way? So it's all about kind of changing the mindset and, and trying to kind of gear away from casting disabled people as A, Oscar bait, or B, you know, kind of the, the sympathetic, inspirational type of character um, that you see. And doing, I hate to say it, but doing more movies like Freaks, where you just show them doing their day-to-day business and, oh yeah, by the way, able-bodied people are jerks. Mm. Something like that. You know, I hate to say that we need more movies like Freaks, but we kind of do. I have to... I mean, this is something I've got to give Ryan Murphy his credit for. And Ryan Murphy, he, if anyone who's watched Glee, would know there's uh, the character of Becky, Becky Jackson. Yes. Who is a character with Down syndrome. Now, Ryan or Murphy... Or American Horror Story. American Horror Story with um, the actress who plays Adelaide. Yeah. Um, yeah. For some, I don't know Ryan Murphy's background um, with and why he... In every series he's produced, there's normally been... A character who has Down syndrome featured. Nip Tuck had a um, a special athlete who what who suffered from Down syndrome, and he wanted to have plastic surgery, so he looked like his brothers, um, his brother and sister. Again, we had in American Horror Story Murder House there was a character with Down syndrome, and again with Lee we had front and center Becky Jackson, arguably the greatest character in the whole series. Yes. Her inner monologue is Helen Mirren. I love that. And exactly. I love the fact that it's Helen Mirren. And her reasoning being that is my monologue, internal monologue, so I can have who sound like who the hell I want. And Lauren, she was played by Lauren Potter, who, again, it's a mainstream TV show. And here we have, although you can obviously class her as being a main character, we have certainly a prominent character with Becky Jackson, who's shown in no way being held back by her disability. And she becomes the sort of psychic to Sue Sylvester, who we obviously see earlier in the season has got an older sister who again suffers from Down syndrome. Yeah. And, and she's not she's not a, a, a symbol of pity or anything like that, which is always always nice to see. Um, and Breaking Bad, I don't watch the show, but I know that they had um, a main character who um, had cerebral palsy, which mm. is always. You know, and, and there, I mean, yeah, television, for some bizarre reason, is actually trying to do more. And and really, I hate to use, I hate to throw him out as the poster child for disability film, but or TV, but Peter Dinklage in, in Game of Thrones. I mean, pretty much the most famous person with a disability in, in television today. And, I mean, their television is doing their, their damnedest to show different faces, and I just kind of wish Hollywood... Inst- I know Eddie Redmayne deserved the Oscar for playing Stephen Hawking, but could we maybe have not opened the pool a little bit <laughs> to getting someone who maybe actually had ALS? But then again, you don't want to hear my theory on why the, the theory of everything worked. Oh, feel free. I mean, we're, the, we have an open forum on this show, so... <laughs> I, I actually made an argument on Twitter that essentially people really like the theory of everything, not just because it's about Stephen Hawking, pretty much the most famous person in a wheelchair probably ever, but it's the fact that we get that 15 or 20 minutes of him walking around like a normal person, because there's actually been talk that able-bodied people 
get uncomfortable dealing with disabled people. So it's easier to relate to them if you know that they were once like you. I'm not kidding. There's actually been write-ups on this. Um, and and I, I kind of argued. I'm like, well, if we just started with Stephen Hawking in the wheelchair and we didn't ever talk about how he was, you know, able-bodied, would it have made a difference? Um, so those these are the things I think about. <laughs> I mean, I did... I did. I didn't like the fact that Fear of Everything won the Best Picture Oscar. I didn't feel it deserved it. It should have really gone to Birdman or perhaps Boyhood. I felt that these were the things I no, mean. Birdman did, Birdman did win Best Picture. It, did Eddie it? Redmond won Best Actor. No, I'm getting confused. You're right, I'm getting confused. I wish that, oh, Keaton had uh, won yeah. Best Actor. There we go. Yeah, I, would, I would agree with you. I would agree with you there. It's it's My problem is this sets a dangerous, it continues to set a dangerous precedent that if you play somebody who's disabled, you're going to automatically get an Oscar. And the reason I say that Theory of Everything worked in terms of having that 15 or 20 minutes of him being able-bodied is if you look at something that didn't get any Oscar attention, um, something like The Sessions with John Hawks, um, where he plays a man in an iron lung trying to um, hire a sex surrogate. And I said that movie came and went with with nothing. It got no recognition when it came out. And I, my argument was is that a it's a person who's been disabled for the entire movie, per, severely disabled, and it's a disabled person who wants to have sex. According to Hollywood, disabled people don't want to have sex, especially not with able-bodied people. <laughs> we just want to be the source of light and inspiration to help you feel better about yourself. Meanwhile, we have no dreams and ambitions and desires of sexuality other than you know just just sitting here looking inspirational uh, but that's my <laughs> argument essentially is that you know that movie came and went because it actually tried to humanize a disabled person and not deify them like theory of everything did and my apologies if you like theory of everything it's an okay movie um i just don't think it's you know the end-all be-all especially for disabled portrayals yeah i, th- I totally agree i think we should have more films that are obviously portraying disabled people in a normal sort of light um, I think it's that I think again with uh, Glee. I don't think this was the intention, but the fact you have Artie, a character in the wheelchair, who's a dick. Um, so I think we should be we shouldn't be afraid to have show disabled people that they can be dicks. Um, although although Artie did get magic million dollar space legs that he never <laughs> used, which always kind of irked me. I was like, wait, we spent a whole episode and we raised probably a million dollars to get him space legs. And he used them once, and then he says, like, they got stolen. Why the hell would you leave those out and about where somebody could steal them? Artie's stupid. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, again, there's, we should have... I like the fact that Peter Dinklage, he's been featured more. I mean, obviously, on the back of Game of Thrones, you know, the biggest fantasy show going at the moment. It's unsurprising that he is being cast because he is essentially everyone's favorite character. Um, and I love the fact that when you first meet his character in Game of Thrones, he's in the brothel. And not just exactly. with one woman, he's with four women at and, the same and Peter time. Dinklage, Peter Dinklage has been, has been well quoted saying that he got offered a lot of roles playing like elves and, and leprechauns and stuff, and he refused to take them, um, which is why I think one of his funniest performances in, is an elf, where, where uh, Will Ferrell makes the running joke that he's an elf, and he, you know Peter Dinklage beats the shit out of him. It's hilarious. Um, but I'm one of, I'm, you know, I'm the rare exception, I think, to, most people kind of look at me weird, like, I went and saw there's something, the Fairley Brothers are also, oddly enough, they try very hard to be inclusive, um, in terms of making fun of disabled people, but actually casting disabled people in those roles. So I think of something like there's something about Mary, 
which has a lot of disabled people, both physically and developmentally. Um, but one of the running jokes is about the character Tucker, who has um, cerebral palsy, and the joke is laughing at him trying to pick up his car keys and making, like, weird contortions. But the joke pays off because you find out that he's not really disabled. He's totally a liar. So he's a total dick. And I remember going to see that with my mom in theaters and laughing so loud during those scenes. And people looked at me like I was the Antichrist because I was not allowed to, being in a wheelchair, laugh at other people who were disabled. And I was like, it's all about context, people. Okay, you can't take yourself, you know, most people who are disabled don't take themselves too seriously, okay? We're not sitting at home crying and talking about bemoaning our, our lot in life and how horrible it is. You know, we can we can laugh at each other if the, this, you know, if the situation calls for it. And, and something like there's something about Mary, the situation calls for it. Yeah, I mean, I think now we've obviously become comfortable with homosexuality on film. We've got more and more sort of gay characters on film and the mainstream characters and it's not just plot point of the week that have someone come out of the closet that I would hope that the next thing for Hollywood to do uh, would be to have more disabled characters being treated in a normal sort of perception rather than as you said the inspiration the person to feel sorry for that you know that we can have the disabled character just be treated the same as any other character and that they can just be a dick and uh, they don't have, just have to be the inspirational one, and there's that exactly. one. Exactly. I'm, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start knocking on doors and leading that crusade. <laughs> I mean, there's that one. Of, there's a wonderful documentary, Murderball, um, and there's one of the one of the um, the players in there, and they're basically saying that saying that a lot of people see him and they think, oh, he's bitter because he's in a wheelchair, and he's like, he was bitter as an asshole before he was in the wheelchair. Exactly. Exactly. People, yeah, there are people like that that were just fine before it. It, comes, it takes all kinds. <laughs> before we obviously uh, wrap up the show this evening, Kristen, um, what have you got uh, obviously coming up uh, in your world of the blogosphere? Uh, right now it's just catching up on all the stuff that I forgot to do um, while I was at TCM. I got a, a ton of review copies and stuff to watch, so... I'm going to be watching Star 80 and U-Turn and Journey to the Center of the Earth and a bunch of other movies that I got graciously sent to me for free. Um, and just, yeah, watching watching more classic films, uh, recording more Walt Sent Me. We're doing The Avengers um, next week, so that should be out soon. Our, our latest episode on Tarzan should be coming out um, hopefully this week for everybody to listen to. And, yep, going, going to see more movies. I actually I have reviews... Uh, I have to go see the new Nicholas Sparks movie this Tuesday, so that should be a fun experience for me. And by fun, I mean I'm going to stab myself in the eye. Yeah, I was about to say <laughs> Nicholas Sparks. I, I can't see anyone saying that going to see a Nicholas Sparks movie is going to be fun. Uh, there's a Hawkeye in it, so I mean I'm a you know red-blooded American <laughs> lady, so I mean I can sit and watch a Hawkeye for 90 minutes, but if it's not just a Hawkeye in like nothing then i'm gonna be really ir- if it's gonna be stupid women and a hawkeye that's not gonna no the two are not gonna meet i can't ignore that so it should be an interesting experience fair enough um again Kristen, thank you very much for coming on this evening it's been an absolute pleasure having you on hopefully we can uh, get you back on for a future edition soon yeah i hope this was this was awesome but um again if uh, people were wanting to obviously follow your work and uh Obviously, uh, Cyberstalker, where's the best place to find you? 
uh, either journeysinclassicfilm.com or awardcircuit.com. I'm also on Twitter um, hash, uh, at the handle at journeys underscore film. Um, so it leaves me with uh, nothing else to do really but uh, thank you again to my co-host this evening Kristen thank you for having me this was awesome cool and this is Edward Jones signing off yet another edition of the Mad Band Downright Strange Showcase by reminding you always always to keep it strange <laughs>